Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bombas socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hello and welcome to History Rage, the podcast where we invite historians to vent their spleen about history and myth. The podcast where we get to throw ourselves at the Atlantic Wall of Misrepresentation in the hope of breaking it down and liberating. I am your regular host, Paul Bavel, and I am here with my partner in rage, Kyle Glover. Hello! And before we get into today's rage, dear ragers, this is episode 50. Half century. I don't know about you, Carl, but I never thought that we'd actually get here. I don't think we get past episode three, to be honest, but here we are. (laughs) Yeah, here we are, 50 episodes on from all those humble beginnings to the rage levels that we have today. So to all the ragers and supporters out there that have stayed with us throughout this journey, thank you very much. Now, today we are remaining in the Second World War and an operation that has many myths and a well-hidden extra dimension to it, which we're going to discuss today. So to take us through the fog of war, we are welcoming historian and author of One Day in August, David O'Keefe. David, welcome to History Rage. Well, thank you for having me, gents. Appreciate it. And now you came along to us by recommendation from our series for Rager, Brad St. Croix, who, who was quite mm. insistent that we get you on. <laughs> uh, and I've read the book that uh, covers today's rage. Uh, excellent book. Highly recommended. Could you give us a brief intro to you and how you came to be where you are? Because I understand this has been quite a journey. Oh boy, has it ever. Yeah, I I guess I'm getting on 25 years doing this right now. And, you know, I started off as a, uh, as a history grad student many, many years ago, whose uh, PhD supervisor actually was the voice on the EP. And I didn't want to go anywhere near it seeing what he had to go through. And it was something I discovered back in 1995, and I thought, well, this might be a little too good to let go, but it took a long time to flesh that out. In the interim, I went on. I was in the Army for a while uh, with the Black Watch of Canada, and then I worked for the Directorate of History and Heritage, part of National Defense. They produce the uh, official histories. Then I started my career teaching and working for History Channel in Canada. So, you know, to this Mm. date, I've made over 20 documentaries and I've written three books, uh, two books, actually. Third one is on its way. 
eventually. And um, yeah, I've been teaching for over 25 years now. So, uh, you know, you can find me at Marianopolis College in Montreal, where I make my home. <laughs> and you know, so we've just, I've just finished reading one day in August. That's been, we, I mean, let's not give everything away. It's what we're going to be talking about today. But that, that has been quite the marathon for you, hasn't it? Yeah, 25 years, well, 15 years of research until I broke the story, and then another 10, covering probably now about 180,000 pages of research, and about 30,000 of them since the publication of the first edition back in 2013, and I just came out with a new one. As a matter of fact, the paperback is on the shelves as of August 4th, 2022. So yeah. it's available everywhere, uh, and you can pick that up. But yes, it's uh, by far the most extensive and comprehensive investigation ever into the Dieppe operation, or Operation Jubilee, which is one of the most controversial and, if you will, mysterious operations when it comes to intent of the Second World War. And if we're going to create some outrage today, okay, your your benchmark is is Matt Bone's episode on the Spitfire that that created just a storm that even I was hiding from. So <laughs> there, there there is there is the benchmark. You know, if you can get three hundred Twitter notifications onto us in the space of an hour, you're uh, you're winning there. Good. Uh, so let's let's kick that controversy into uh, yeah into first gear, shall we? David, with with all the rage and emotion that you feel that it warrants, would you please tell our angry mob of history ragers the one thing that you wish people would just stop believing? Stop about the Dieppe raid. Okay, well, well, first of all, I mean, a little bit of background. Dieppe operation happens on August 19th, 1942. It is a one-day butcher and bolt raid uh, launched by Combined Operations Headquarters under Lord Louis Mountbatten. Vast majority of the men on the raid are Canadians, um, there's also Brits, a sprinkling of Americans, and a couple of free Frenchmen along for the ride. It turns out to be a horrible disaster. In less than six hours, uh, the 5,000-man raiding force takes about 70% casualties. 1,000 men are killed, 907 Canadians. And it was always a mystery right from 1942 as to what was behind the operation. So you can imagine, without coming forward with the truth at the time, a Pandora's box has opened up with excuses that have, you know, and we'll, I'm sure we'll talk mm -hmm. about them in detail. But the one that I constantly hear right from the start, and it was uttered by Lord Louis Mountbatten, basically to distance himself from the casualties and the scrutiny of it all was that the blood at Dieppe paved the way for the victory at Normandy two years later. What a load of horseshit. That's probably the best <laughs> way of putting it. The most professional way that I could perhaps put it is that it is just crap. I mean, this is Mountbatten at his best, you know, doing what he does. And without a doubt, that is not to belittle the sacrifices but the operation itself, which I mentioned earlier, is a one-day butcher and bolt, other than being on the water and crossing the English Channel, has absolutely nothing to do with Normandy, period. Normandy is a completely different beast. That's, a, that's an operation that requires a massive tail. With Dieppe, you're coming for a couple of hours, butchering, as Churchill would say, and then getting the hell out. You don't have to worry about logistics. You don't have to worry about taking a beach, building up a beach, building up a bridgehead, breaking out of the bridgehead and liberating Europe. That was D-Day in 1944. 
So you look back and you look at, first of all, the great British naval tradition. It's not like the British have never conducted amphibious operations before. Uh, it didn't just suddenly start in World War II. You also um, realize that the Americans are pulling off massive amphibious operations in 42, 43, and early 44 in the Pacific. Yeah. Not to mention the Allies are invading North Africa in 42, and Sicily in 43, and the continent of Europe in Italy. So all these are the actual precursors to learning the lessons that save the lives and provide victory at in Normandy in 1944. Dieppe is not like that. It's kind of like going to a Formula One race and considering your Lada to have a hope in hell of winning. It's just not the right vehicle for the race, if you know what I mean. So that's the big one right off the bat, that you see it trotted out every anniversary. And there's just nothing there historically. And I guess that kind of gets us into the rest of what we're talking about, yes. which are the myths. And there really are a lot of myths of Dieppe. Yeah. yeah so we could be here all night if we, if, if we start talking about all of them. But seeing as we're at the time of recording, we're in the run-up to the anniversary and these sort of things pop up at the top 10 myths about it. What are your top three myths about Dieppe and what are the actual facts about the mission. Okay, I think the other one that you see quite regularly is this was done to placate the Russian, that somehow this was put on because Stalin was screaming that he needed a second front and he needed a second front now. And those are two separate issues. Dieppe does not solve or even attempt to solve the call mm -hmm. for a second front, largely because of what I just mentioned before. The yeah. fact that this is a one-day butcher and bolt, which the British themselves know and everybody knows, will not um, uh, achieve the desired results of having the Germans pair off either ground forces or air forces from the Eastern Front to send across. You would need to be raiding every single day for six months before they would do something like that. A one-off like Dieppe was not designed, let alone intended for this. Now, with that said, the British were still, and the Allies, were considering two other operations that actually were, were put on for that. One was Operation Sledgehammer, and the other one was Operation Imperator. And as a matter of fact, they were kind of on again, off again, on again, off again, and finally on again. When Churchill went to Moscow in 1942, in August, he wasn't bringing the Dieppe raid as an offering. He was bringing Operation Torch, the invasion of North Africa. That was going to, in his mind, mm -hmm. satisfy Stalin. But they also had two aces up their sleeve to respond to an immediate Soviet cri de coeur, as they would say. In other words, we're going down or we need support, do something now. And both of these operations, Sledgehammer and more importantly, Imperator, Imperator were actually laid on and ready to go at a moment's notice if that call came. Now, that's all from the Chiefs of Staff files. You can find it there. And unfortunately, a lot of historians have either conveniently missed that or they records mm. weren't available at the time. But these two operations are designed to seize and hold temporarily bridgeheads on the continent. So therefore, they would be like a magnet and they would attract forces from the Eastern Front to basically either expel them or try to keep them contained. Dieppe is not that at all. Dieppe is in and out. Yeah. One day, you know, you're not setting up, you're not going camping, you know, with Dieppe. Whereas here, you're going into the woods, you're not building a house, but you're, you know, setting up a campsite. You're going to stay for a little while until your resources run out and then you're going to escape out the back. But these are very much alive 
and on the table and ready to go at a moment's notice. And I guess part of the, you know, the adventure for me was trying to fit Dieppe into the context of 1942. And when I took a look at the history of 1942, the historiog historiography of 1942, I realized that if there's anybody out there who wants to do a fantastic book or a PhD, oh boy, you need to rewrite that narrative because there are so many mistakes and misunderstandings in the 1942 narrative. I think Alan Allport is doing something, which, you know, fingers crossed, he's going to do a great job. But uh, yeah, so that's basically where it is on that one. I suppose, really, if you're the the big thing there that pay, takes Jubilee off the table as a Russian distraction is if you were to even hand out the basics of that plan to Stalin without even getting involved, I would imagine the first thing he's going to look at down and go, "Okay, so you're coming into Dieppe, and then twelve hours later you are yeah, leaving." Exactly. It's why has nobody ever asked that question yeah. before? Yeah, I'm thinking if he's sitting there with Churchill and he looks at this, he looks up and he says, "Yet." <laughs> it's just not yeah. going to work. Also, too, remember the timing. A lot of people conveniently think because it goes in in August of 1942 that that's when Dieppe was conceived. It was not. It was conceived at the end of March, early April, when there was no requirement whatsoever to help the Russians. The Russians were on the counterattack. Everything was relatively rosy after Moscow until May of 1942. So there is absolutely no connection with that. And I guess... That's probably the big problem with Dieppe and the historiography. It's all ex post facto. A lot of it is based on evidence that came out after the event. And what I did with my historiographical methodology was to go back and just basically strip it down and rebuild the beast right with the contemporary documents and try to keep the ex post facto out of it until I was finished rebuilding it and then see where it falls. So there's a lot, you know, there's a lot there that is, how would I say, almost um elementary when it comes yeah. to this you know the the as one historian pete henshaw said there's a really shaky edifice that this is built on and without a doubt that is true okay so you mentioned those one more so that was okay so yeah. the next one would probably be the lessons learned in other words we were going there to learn lessons now that's kind of reminds me, and I don't know if you guys remember the old American sitcom Cheers about the bar oh, in Boston. Yes. And remember they had the, the know-it-all postman, Cliff Clavin? Well, yeah. Cliff finally gets his chance on Jeopardy, and he bets it all on the last question, and he blows it. And the question is, you know, who are these three actors? Or he, they give three real names of actors, and he's stumped. And his answer is, when they reveal it, is three people who've never been in my kitchen. So that's basically it. He can't come up with the answer, so he comes up with something broad. Well, that's the, we were there to learn lessons. In other words, you know, we're sitting down doing this today. We're doing this for a purpose. Obviously, no matter what happens, we're going to learn some lessons about doing podcasts, but that's not the reason why we're together today. We're together <laughs> to talk about Dieppe. Well, it's the same thing. If you are out to test, if you're out, you know, to learn lessons, there's no reason why you can't state that in your operational orders right from the beginning. In other words, this is a test of the German defenses. This is the test of our ability to sneak across the channel. This is a test of this. That is not in there whatsoever. And you will see other plans when they do do that. So there's no reason why that needs to be off the books. Also, again, what I mentioned earlier 
the British Empire has been pretty good at pulling off, you know, amphibious operations. They had done some in the in the Mediterranean up until this point, um, in North Africa. And, you know, every year at Staff College, this is a standard thing for all officers looking into amphibious operations, whether you're in the Navy, the Air Force, or uh, in the Army. So, you know, this is not something that they need to do on this scale. Plus, they've already raided St. Nazaire. They've raided the Lofoten Islands. There are plenty of le- genuine lessons that have been learned. Now, with that said, it doesn't mean that at the end of the day, you can't learn some lessons. And of course, they do draw lessons from Dieppe, mostly how not to do things, and maybe some things that were ultra secret until the last few years. One of them, not to do directly with my book, but has to do with the RAF. And basically what they were doing, which was fascinating, and they threw this on the last moment, they thought, what a great opportunity. We're going to Dieppe. We're going to get an air battle. Why don't we do this? And they took a Bletchley Park representative, code breaking and put them on one of the ships because what they expected was that they would be able to decode in real time the Luftwaffe traffic and be able to get it back to the ships to the forward air controllers and then get it up into the sky where the RAF could then use it and it didn't work well not because they couldn't break the codes but because they had so much success that they couldn't handle the volume of material that was actually being sent, <laughs> which is amazing. So they were all like victims of their own success. But they did harness that lesson and then use that very effectively in the invasions of Sicily and Italy and Normandy. But this was a Johnny come lately kind of, you know, light bulb moment that went off on somebody's head, you know, in somebody's head saying, Oh my God, we got to do this at the last moment. So the lessons learned uh, that's, it's a catch-all, you know? Yeah. So that's not what Operation Jubilee is. What is Operation Jubilee actually about, then? Okay. Well, what we didn't understand until about 10 years ago, um, when I was able to get something declassified by GCHQ, was that for the first, starting in 1941, the British were actually creating what were called pinch raids or pinch operations. The idea being they needed to capture material for code breakers at Bletchley Park. And this was fascinating. This seemed to be out there, kind of a a creation of James Bond. But in reality, what sold me was when they released the material that showed that there was actually a pinch policy in place, that there was a developing doctrine. The Basically, the idea was that you could not create an operation that was narrow in scope to tip the Germans off to the fact that you were trying to capture cipher and coding material. You had to make whatever operation you were conducting uh, large enough to completely either bury, hide, or deflect suspicion of what the actual mm-hmm. main core or engine of the operation was. So they did this with great success. The first one was up in Norway in March of 1941, and it was at the Lofoten operation, and it was put on specifically for this. It was wildly successful. And then they shifted gears a little bit, and instead of raiding a port, which they thought was wonderful, because if you raid a port, ships can't run away. They're trapped. You can grab the material off ships, and better yet, in the port, you have a couple of other, you know, pots of gold. You've got a naval headquarters and supply depots, which then will have stockpiles of material that is going to be distributed in the future. So if you could get your hands on this material, that was considered to be gold. 
So in the summer of 41, when they found out that there was a new um, Enigma machine on the horizon, up until this point, they had been trying and successfully defeating the three-rotor Enigma. But when the Germans introduced a four-rotor Enigma, which took the unworldly odds of, and this gives you an impression of what Turing and the boys were up to at Bletchley, uh, the odds of breaking into an, a four-rotor Enigma machine without captured material to sort of cheat the system was 92 septillion to one. Now, as a historian, you can wow. imagine I had to look up that number. I had no clue a number like that yeah. existed. Yeah, I think a mathematician has to look up that number. I think so. Yeah, and I saw it written down, so I had to look it up first. Um, yeah, so 92 septillion to one. So you can imagine just how important pinching material is to speed up that process because yeah. it's all about cutting down the odds. And, of course, that's what they were doing. And to do it, they adopted what was called a sledgehammer to crack a nut approach. In other words, you put on a disproportionate amount of force that would deflect what you were up to. So in other words, even if the Germans kind of suspected that maybe you would capture something, at least they wouldn't suspect you were determined to capture it, that it was quite by incident. It was just incidental, quite by accident. And what they were doing is, at, after they were raiding on shore, and then they decided they would go out in the middle of the ocean, they were targeting weather trawlers, German weather trawlers, that had the various material that they wanted on it. And they would send a force of, get this, three destroyers and two cruisers to take out a weather trawler. The idea being that in the Germans' assessment, no force like that would ever be allocated to taking out a, a weather trawler. So any kind of contact had to be accidental or incidental, and therefore any damage or suspected compromise would strictly be limited. The Germans always expected at times the Allies would be able to penetrate their Enigma ciphers, but what they mm -hmm. didn't count on was a factory like Bletchley Park being in existence. So they had no concept that this would be done consistently over... If I could just kind of come to the point that you made there, yeah. like we're taking, what is it, three destroyers yeah. and two cruisers to take on a weather trawler. Yeah. Now, I'm right in thinking that until we get over that four-rotor Enigma problem, we need the Navy... Because the Battle of the Atlantic is in full force. If you're going to divert five ships to go after a weather trawler, they, this has got to be an important operation. You're absolutely right. And that's one of the big arguments I make in the book uh, with Dieppe, as you will see later. A lot of it comes down to force allocation. And you're absolutely right. This is the height of the Battle of the Atlantic where every destroyer is worth its weight in gold. You do not pair off destroyers. Uh, unless it is of an urgent nature. The operation is urgent, without a doubt. Also remember that the Navy tends to hold a veto power in any kind of operation, particularly combined operations. In other words, they can simply mm -hmm. say, the ships aren't available if they don't want to do something. And they do that. So if they're giving the ships over, it, there is something in, in it for them, without a doubt. It's not just them being good servants of the crown. They, you know, they also operate in or did operate in their own interest at the time. And of course, their interest was, you know, winning the Battle of the Atlantic and having the insight that is provided by cryptography by able to, you know, read your enemy's email, if it will. You know their intentions, you know where they're going, you know, you know, everything about new technologies that are coming in, you, you know, their, their, their hopes, their fears, their dreams, their desires, their, you know, 
you have it all. And therefore, you can judiciously move your chess pieces around the board. It's the ultimate force enhancer. And that's something that was not lost on the British or the Allies during the war. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Now, one of these pinch raids uh, that you mentioned of, uh, I'm going to talk Operation Ruthless here. Oh, yes. The first. Okay, so, it, I mean, it sounds like an adventure story in itself. It, yeah. Um, can you can you, can you tell the guys out there, basically, for those that don't know Operation Ruthless, kind of briefly what it is okay. and how serious was it? Well, this is the fascinating part because when I started this, I mean, what started my whole journey was finding a, a document at the uh, at British National Archives about a special commando unit that was raised specifically for pinch purposes. Now, it was raised in 1942. But it was raised by Ian Fleming. So, of course, anytime you get involved with Ian Fleming, you walk into a minefield because half the world thinks he was James Bond himself and the other half thinks he talked out of his hat. Well, the reality was he was more in the middle. He was not a faceless bureaucrat uh, by any stretch, but he was not James Bond either. But he was the personal assistant to the director of naval intelligence, John Godfrey, and he was his Machiavellian hatchet man. He was the ideas guy. He was, you know, the guy who made things happen. And so pinching became his responsibility. And he started off in a very crude, very dramatic way in the summer of 1940 when Great Britain is staring down the, you know, the Nazi boot and expecting an invasion anytime right after the fall of France. And what he designed is almost, you know, ripped out of a James Bond novel. And of course, most historians, including myself, just thought it was, you know, him talking through the top of his hat and it never got off the ground. Well, until I started researching, I didn't realize that, yeah, it had got off the ground and it was fully sanctioned. It came up empty, but they put it in. And it was fascinating because it was the ultimate Trojan horseplay. The idea, very simply, was to take a captured German bomber, a Heinkel uh, 111, and they were going to dress up the crew like a German crew. They were going to fly or take off um, at the end of one of the raids on London or elsewhere in England. They were going to join the bomber stream, and then over the channel, they were going to signal an SOS, and they were going to simulate, well, they, they had smoke pods, and they were going to light up the smoke pods, and they were going to simulate distress. They were going to call out a rescue boat with the Enigma machine on it and the associated material that they were looking for, They were going to crash land the aircraft not far from the rescue boat. And then as the rescue boat came to get them, they were going to jump into their dinghies 
and they were going to row over to the boat, of course, with concealed weapons in the dinghy. And then right at the precise moment, a British RAF, and I think it was a Lysander, was going to come in and distract the crew by launching a fake attack on the e-boat or whatever the boat was that came out. The crew get their attention, and that's when the commandos dressed up as the German air crew would spring into action. And then they would jump in. And I know it sounds like a Hollywood movie. It sounds like something out of U571. Why hasn't this been a movie? Oh, exactly. Well, I think they tried U571 and that didn't go down well. <laughs> but, um, and then they were going to jump on board, seize the material. And this is where I think Fleming got himself in trouble. He ordered that the crew be machine gunned to cover up what they had done. Somebody later on had caught up and said, Oh yeah, this probably isn't good. You may want to yeah. you may want to tweak that. Either way, um, because of that nature, there's been some stuff in the archives and people, historians before me, have found it and went, "Oh no, no, no! This never went in. This is just Fleming's imagination." Nope, <laughs> you can actually see the Air Force instructions. I mean, this was taken beyond serious, and they had everything laid on. They had special code words. They had special airfields. Um, as a matter of fact, the bomber was provided by Lord Beaverbrook, who ran the air ministry at the time. He was, you know, he uh, he gave up the bomber. So, again, kind of like what you were mentioning before in the Battle of the Atlantic, um, they're clearing airspace in the Battle of Britain to pull this off. That is unheard of. They're giving over a captured German bomber for this. And they went in twice. But as they say in the final report, we just didn't find a victim. And so as a result, that's where we see the switch. Somebody sort of caught Fleming and said, look, if we're going to do this, we've got to do this on a larger scale because this is too much of a pinpoint operation. And it's two things. You're either going to give it away or you're going to end up committing war crimes to cover up what you're doing. So what they did then, and that was in the fall of 1940, and then what they did in the spring of 1941 was decided to do the pinch operations uh, under the cover of amphibious raids. And that's where it started. So now I think any serious um, historian who's looking at combined operations in the raids of 1941 and 42 has to go back and view it through this template. Whether they all are pinch raids or not remains to be seen. But the pinch policy laid it out very clearly. There are three types. Pinch by chance, which basically is if you come across something in the middle of a battle, looks like a typewriter, (laughs) pick it up. Or anything to do with code material, pick it up. Pinch by opportunity. In other words, we've got an operation going in and where we're going, you likely will find what you're looking for. So make preparations and and pick up what you need while you're there. And the last one was called pinch by design. In other words, we've got a problem needs to be solved, create an operation. We have to go and get these things. And that's what we're starting to look at. And uh, I would argue from what my research is telling me, certainly Dieppe is a pinch by design. The two Lofoten raids are pinched by design, and I would even venture that the famous St. Nazaire raid, with its target of blowing a dock, when we really dig into it, you will find out that that was also a pinch operation on a U-boat base at the time. So there's a lot more to this, and of course, that's the beauty of historical research. You know, you, you stumble into one thing, and next thing you know, you pop the lid off of something much bigger. Whilst we're on the subject of the St. Nazaire raid, um... It's often said after they pulled off yeah. such an amazing uh, success that uh, combined operations were sort of drunk on victory. 
How did that impact the planning and the actual Dieppe raid itself? There's no doubt. I, I certainly agree with that. And I don't think it just started at the St. Nazaire raid. I think it started back in the Lofoten Island operations in 1941, in March of 41, and in the uh, tail end, December of 41. There is unparalleled success with these operations, at least when it comes to not taking casualties. As a matter of fact, the casualties are extremely low on all of these operations. And then you will notice, particularly when Lord Louis Mountbatten takes over in November 1941, takes over Combined Operations Headquarters, now he sees this as a vehicle for his empire building. And there's no doubt about it that he will benefit not only from the popularity, but also in Whitehall from being able to craft this into a delivery vehicle for what the codebreakers need and what Churchill loves to have. And that's his intelligence. So in this particular case, you can see several factors coming together. Uh, victory disease, as we like to call it. In other words, nothing has gone mm -hmm. wrong up to this point. What could possibly go wrong now? The massive success uh, of, uh, at least popular success, I should argue, of St. Nazaire, which also, when you think about it, step back, it seems kind of strange, you know, and people will say, oh, my God, they put on these pinch raids. That seems to be so out there. Well, really, look at St. Nazaire. What's the plan at St. Nazaire? Yes. Let's take a bunch of commandos. We'll stick them on an American destroyer that's dressed up to look like a German destroyer, and we're going to ram it into a dock. Why? Because maybe in the off chance that the Tirpitz breaks out of Norway and somehow needs repairs, it may venture to the west coast of France. Oh, by the way, just to ensure it, we are going to stick the bow filled with timed explosives and blow it up. And what do the commandos do? They run to Spain to escape. And somehow that is considered to be the state of the art, and we accept that, right? When you think about that, yeah. And when you put it yeah. yeah. outlandish, right? Sorry, sorry to my Saint Nazaire, and I think Saint Nazaire is great, and I think it took balls of steel for those guys to do what they're doing. But when you think about the concept of Saint Nazaire, but there's something else hidden with Saint Nazaire. It was a twin operation. People don't know this. There was another operation that was slated to go in 24 hours later called Operation Myrmidon or Myrmidon, depending on how you want to pronounce it. It was a raid at Bayonne and it was delayed for a week. And then when they finally got there, somebody had screwed up the planning and they couldn't get into the estuary that led to Bayonne because of a sandbar. So literally they showed up, Germans didn't see them, so they were ready to pounce in a surprise raid couldn't get in, so they snuck away and went back, and the Germans never knew. But this was the one-two punch of St. Nazaire. And when we're talking about the St. Nazaire raid, a lot of people don't realize that you have to factor in the Bayon, which was definitely a pinch by design. So part of what we're seeing with St. Nazaire, even though I don't have the direct evidence, there's enough smoke that suggests, or certainly requires further investigation, but suggests to me, if you're going to ask me, my spidey sense tells me that if you're hitting a U-boat base, that's exactly the pot of gold you're looking for. The others are great and you will get what you're looking for, but the U-boat base is something else. It may be a little too direct and the Germans may twig into what you're doing or tweak to what you're doing. So that could be it. But either way, there's more investigation to be done. But at the end of the day, all of this is taking a toll on Mountbatten's staff. They are becoming 
hubristic, arrogant. They are cutting mm-hmm. corners. They're dismissing things. As a matter of fact, the first naval commander, Admiral Bailey Groman, is brought in specifically because he is um, kind of a sober-minded character, and they want to bring him in to sort of oversee the naval plan. Well, he gets fed up, and basically he says, look, this is falling between two stools. Your plan ties the hands of the commanders, and they can't do anything when it comes to the detailed plan. He said there's no joint appreciation of this operation being done. In other words, everybody's working in silos. Nobody's sitting down together and saying, okay, how is this all going to work together? So he is raising the alarm bells. And what happens to him? Mountbatten gets rid of him. So basically, Mountbatten is, you know, stocking up on sycophants. And everybody is telling Mountbatten, yeah, no problem, no issues. And you can see that with the Dieppe operation. You can see that the whole thing is predicated on an unreasonable level of surprise. You know, surprise is always great to have in any operation. But in this case, they took the slider or the dial and they turned it to 11. You know, they went past 10 and they went right (laughs) to 11 with surprise. But it was, um, I think it was Cunningham, uh, Admiral Cunningham or Ramsey, one of the two, who said they're just a bunch of enthusiastic amateurs. And sadly, what comes out in the wash at the end of the day was very much that, that their intent may have been good to a certain degree and what they were after may have been, you know, without a doubt laudable and extremely important, but it was um, a truly amateurish approach and methodology that they brought to the table for actually bringing this out in August of 1942. So leading on from that, we've got the, this small band of sycophants building up around the people in charge. We've got this focus on surprise. What else went wrong during the actual mission or in the run-up to it? Well, I think really it goes back to just the plan itself. Um, Mm. The plan itself really didn't go through the wash to the degree where it needed to. As they say, you know, we, we on this side of the Atlantic, we call it contingencies. And you over there, you call it branches and sequels, which I prefer. And they were not enough or the proper branches and sequels, I would argue, built into the plan. There were certain contingencies, but unfortunately, the plan for the Dieppe raid is heavy, it's complex, it's intricate, and sadly, it's based on timing and surprise to an unrealistic level. Anytime you have any plan of war that is based on strict timings, you are just begging to have those timings interrupted. And unless your plan has the branches and sequels to be able to absorb that like a shock absorber, you are going to have a disaster. And that's what happens at Dieppe. All these little things, the connective tissue, if you will, uh, or tissues just aren't there. And so when something goes wrong, it tends to have a cascading effect, despite the fact that they built in some contingencies, the contingencies aren't enough. Also, too, You've got to remember that you're dealing with the German army in 1942, and even their, you know, second squad can still beat your first tier squad on any day. They're that good. The Germans in Dieppe are on home field, you know, they're on home field territory. They've been sitting there for two years. They have every single inch of that beach and that port and the cliffs to each side taped off. They are professional, highly professional. And so as a result, it's going to be a tough nut no ma- to crack no matter what. And so, uh, you know, you have that and just plain bad luck. 
there's always something, you know, as, uh, you know, we always say in the army, no plan survives first contact. And as somebody mentioned to me the other day, Mike Tyson, the boxer had something and he said, well, basically everybody's got a plan until you get punched in the face. And that's basically what you see here. So there's a whole bunch of things that come together, but it is predicated without a doubt, I would argue on that mounting victory disease that that the arrogance the hubris the drift that is happening at Mountbatten's headquarters what poss nothing's gone wrong in the past what possibly could go wrong now well august 19 pretty much everything did and the rest as we say is history uh -huh. now if as we mentioned uh when we mentioned right at the start that dieppe isn't and never was a dry run for d-day uh you know, the, the lessons learned myth is, is out there. I don't think it's anything going away. I'm going to come back to that myth now. And did we actually learn anything useful from Dieppe about D-Day? Not in, I would argue, a massively fundamental sense. There are certain things that, yes, without a doubt, would be common sense after this. That's not the reason we went to, D, uh, to Dieppe. But for instance, one of the big failures with the plan was the fact that the engineers, the Canadian engineers who had an, a, a, an essential role of blowing roadblocks to allow the tanks into the harbor to provide fire support for those making the pinch, they were gunned down on the beach. They had absolutely no cover whatsoever. So by the time we get to D-Day, we have the funnies. We have the engineer tanks, right, that are, you know, clearing, mm -hmm. clearing paths and protecting and doing the job that these you know, engineers on foot were doing at Dieppe. So without a doubt, from an engineering perspective, we learn. We also learn, like I mentioned before, about, you know, Bletchley Park and harnessing real-time intelligence for the air war. The other thing we learn is something that actually, I would argue, is really the only success of Dieppe, is the ability to sneak a 250-vessel raiding force across the English Channel in the middle of the night without the Germans catching on. I mean, that is impressive. And I think from there, mm. you can develop your deception operations. But remember, and to bring this right back to full circle, deception only works if you can read your opponent's messages to know how they're reacting. If it's not for something like Ultra, Code Breaking, Bletchley Park, you cannot pull off Operation Fortitude because it would be a guess. But because you yeah. have the ability to read the enemy's emails, you know what they're doing. So you got to think about Ultra in that sense, the code breaking. It's not just the Battle of the Atlantic. It's the very lifeblood of decision making in the Second World War for the Allies. So it all kind of comes around full circle. But those would be the big ones that I would argue offhand. I'm sure there's going to be other people who will point out little things that were developed. But those are the three that pretty much come to hand right away. So, hindsight's a wonderful thing. Was it worth it? <laughs> Was it worth it? Great question. I get this all the time, and I will give you an answer that sounds like I'm skating. Being the Canadian, I've had some practice. Um, <laughs> what I will do is I will tell you this. The attempt was worth it, without a doubt. In other mm -hmm. words, you have a disease that is about to hit in pandemic fashion. Okay, I'm going to use a contemporary analogy. You have a four-rotor which is coming into service throughout not only the Navy, but the Air Force and the Army are likely to be bringing this in as well. 
Bletchley Park in 1942 has no solution to this on the horizon, and they won't for at least 18 months from what they can see. So it'll be sometime in the summer of 1943, if they're lucky, before they can deal with this. Imagine, you know, this is kind of like stepping on a garden hose, you know, in 1942. It's going to be very difficult to win the war of distribution if you don't know where your enemy U-boats are. You don't know when they're going to launch air raids. You don't know when they're, you know, how they're positioning their troops around the globe and things like this. So that certainly is, um, you know, is, is, is something along those lines when it comes to, uh, you know, when it comes to that particular period. So it's definitely worth the attempt. My issue is the method of it, attempting to achieve it. There certainly had to have been a better way of doing this. And I think that's what I would like to see where my research would like to go. Um, I know that the staff colleges in England, Great Britain, and the United States are now looking at this as perhaps the first uh, real special operation. Because in Dieppe, you have an infiltration and exfiltration plan. It's not just a bunch of commandos getting ashore and mucking about. I mean, they've got a purpose and they're trying to do this. So what I would like to see is, you know, coming out of this is the proper lessons being learned for this. And part of it is, okay, we have something that we need to do. Here is Dieppe. Here's how they did it. Now, how should they have done it? And I think that's really it. So yes, it's worth it in the sense of the attempt but it's not worth it in the sense of the methodology that they actually employ. So how's that for skating on a very thin pond? Mm, flawless, <laughs> I would have to say. <laughs> ten, 10 out of 10 there. That was, that, that was absolutely excellent. Um, well, thank you very much, David. Thanks a lot, because that has opened up a whole new angle for, for many of us about a, a raid that's now entered into legend as uh, as an outright folly as a training exercise as absolutely everything other than it really was and i will hold my hands up as being completely guilty of that myth as well even as somebody who's looked in some detail at the second world war that's the you know your your book was a revelation for me so so thank you very much for sparing time in your busy schedule to come on our uh, half centenary pleasure pleasure it's fun thank you for having me but you know look uh, just one sort of parting you know, parting, uh, parting note. Um, it doesn't matter the kind of research and what we know about the Dieppe agent and the origins. It doesn't change the fact that a thousand men die in six hours, you know, and that's the thing at the end of the day. So, you know, understanding what it was about seeing the historiography of the intent change, that's wonderful. But at the same time, you know, make sure that we, you know, are sober to the fact of what the cost was for this operation. As, uh, as the, chap you interviewed in the book mentioned and he said that uh, at last i can die in peace because i know that my comrades didn't die for nothing yeah well yes <laughs> that that's interesting i mean i i ron beale that was one of the most emotional days i've had as a professional uh i didn't expect that to come out of his mouth that was quite something you know but at the end of the day you know they didn't reach their objective they tried. They were within a stone's throw. I mean, I use a, a football analogy. And when I say football, I mean American football. Uh, I'm sorry to all my, my soccer friends. It's, it's basically like being on the goal line and running the ball all four times and get stopped on the goal line in the last second of the game. And that's basically what happens. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of men died for that. As a matter of fact, at the end of the day, when I did the math, over half of the deaths 
on that day. Almost 60% are in direct pursuit of the pinch. And the same thing with the overall casualties, not to mention half of the entire raiding force is involved directly in this. So, you know, there's a lot more to it, without a doubt. Well, thank you. Pleasure. So, if you'd like to know more about this subject, then you can start, frankly, by reading the excellent book one day in August, uh, about out now in both paperback and hardpack. Uh, we're going to have a link to that in the History Rage bookshop. And you can and should also follow David on Twitter at O'Keefe Historian, uh, and you'll get a, an awful lot more about Dieppe, Canada, and everything that's on his mind. Yes, you will. So once again, David, <laughs> thank you very much yes, for coming thank on. Thank you. Brilliant episode. Thank you. Oh, thanks for having me on, guys. Appreciate it. Ladies and gentlemen, I hope you've enjoyed this episode. You can follow us on Twitter at History Rage or individually. I am at Paul Bavel. And I'm at Kyle G History. And if you subscribe to us on Patreon, you're really helping us meet the cost of podcasting. Your £5 per month will get you early episodes, an entire season in advance, the invite to put questions to future guests, and of course, the coveted History Rage mug. And you can subscribe at patreon.com forward slash history rage. Now, this is the end of series five, so we're going to take a short break now, and we will see you in a fortnight. But in the meantime, stay angry. Bye bye. Bye bye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.